Our scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. So as I alluded to earlier, this is a great passage to test yourself on how you read the Bible to see whether you are a moralizer. And what I mean by that is the Bible, the stories in the Bible, are they supposed to be an example for you? Or are they supposed to, through the account, teach you about your spiritual condition, the person of Christ, and his necessary work for you? So we're going to look at four things in this passage. We're going to look first at this paralytic man and and what it means that he was paralyzed. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, why he has to be carried and what that might imply for our sinful condition. I want to look at how Jesus instantly in Mark, he he didn't start in the first chapter, but here almost at the beginning of the book, there's a confrontation brewing between the scribes, the Pharisees, and Jesus. And this is the result of Uh, hypocritical religious systems attempting to get in the way of God's action in that time and in that space. Um, So with that, also this passage that we read today also has the the story of Levi. We're going to look at who Levi was as a traitor to the people of Israel. And then finally, we're going to look at what Jesus says about our need. 
your need, my need for him to come, and also recognizing our need. If you do not recognize your need for Jesus Christ, you have no need for Jesus Christ, and you will not take him up on his offer, which is that he would save your soul, restore you to fellowship with God. If you do not recognize your condition, you cannot see the worth of Christ. If you were here in the Sunday school hour, this is a great corollary uh, uh, anecdotally to the things that we talked about in the Sunday school hour. Um, but I would like to start off first with an, an explanation. This guy who is on this bed, the, you can think of it more like a stretcher or a cot than a bed. They're not carrying around a queen-size bed through a roof. They're, they're carrying around a cot or, or a stretcher or some, you know, you may have you know, seen what they do in battlefields, how they have those two bars with the canvas in between it. These four guys have to carry this man. Uh, this man is not uh, well. He's not uh, in any way able to walk. He's not able to press through the crowds to get to Jesus. And this guy is completely immobile. And I just want to explain something about, uh, this sounds kind of silly, like these four guys went up to the roof and then they started digging through the roof to get through a roof into a room that's beneath it. That's not what happened. They're not taking jackhammers to the concrete, you know, ceiling of a, of a house. They're, they're removing a part of the roof that was removable. If you've ever seen like maybe a Spanish movie or been to Spain or, or maybe Mexico, you might know what a hacienda is. A hacienda is usually a square house and they're set up in such a way that the wind can move through and, and there's usually a courtyard and the upper roof has a, uh, there's, you know, sometimes colonnades there, and then the, the upper roof has a, a part that can be removed or a part that can be, you know, set aside. It's kind of like a, a covering. Maybe if you've seen a, a, a tent camper, sometimes they have those, you know, escape hatches at the top or, or whatever. This, they're not, they're not raining down bits of plaster on the people inside the roof. But they are having to go through an, uh, an extreme amount of work. Basically, what's happened here is, is Jesus is in this house. It's probably a wealthy person's house. It's a, it's a nice house. He's teaching sometimes from the window uh, in, in Judaist, uh, Ju Judaistic tradition, Jewish tradition. They were, would often uh, have a teacher, and he would stand in an upper room. And then from that upper room, he would teach, which is why the upper room discourse in John 14 through 17 is so important to understand. That's the, the true rabbi's final teaching on the earth. And so, so Jesus is teaching from this upper room, and they basically are doing everything they can to get this guy in there. But there's a huge crowd and if you're any student of the Bible or you've heard a few, you know, heard sermons a bunch, you, you may know of Nicodemus, how there was this other crowd and Nicodemus had to do what? He had to climb on a sycamore tree and for the Lord he wanted to see, right? Uh, sorry, Zacchaeus, right? Not Nicodemus. Nicodemus was at night. Zacchaeus and Nicodemus, same person in my mind. Not really, but uh, anyway, so he has to climb this tree. Very similar thing. There's tons of people around Jesus, and he can't. They they can't get to him. So they're they're going over every obstacle. This is trying to tell us about the the distance between man and Christ. The distance between man and God. So they're they're pushing away every obstacle. But I want to explain that this uh, this teaching is often interpreted in a moralistic way. And I want to explain what I mean by that, but just look really quickly. There's four men, 
and they, they carry this paralytic guy. Uh, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the parrot lay. So basically, they are climbing to the outside second-story window, either a ladder or uh, some sort of ramp or, or external thing to the building. And then from there, they come back in. So the, they're just trying to get in any way they can. They're, they're climbing over a wall, so to speak. The temptation is in this in this story and all of other gospel stories and all other biblical accounts is to moralize away the teaching that is plainly here. And what I mean by that is oftentimes you hear this story taught as one of two things that the paralytic man did right. The paralytic man is is honored or blessed for either having a lot of good friends who are willing to help him. And so moralistic teachers turn this into an injunction against you so that you would watch over the company you keep. Now, it's true that you should watch over the company that you keep, but that's not the point of this. The point is that this paralytic man can't get there. Another thing that is often commended, even if this paralytic man doesn't, these aren't his friends, it, it doesn't say that his, uh, these people are his friends, you could uh, say that the paralytic man was so zealous to get to Christ that he convinced passersby to listen to his call, uh, his plea for help, and then we are told as Christians, we also likewise need to be, you know, uh, zealous for Jesus. That's the moralizing way to read this passage. It, it, all, it, it completely is discongruous. It, it doesn't line up with uh, the, 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 the text that's plainly here. This person who has this palsy, uh, the, a paralytic condition, is a whole, it, in the, in the um, original text, it's a whole body paralysis. The, he's able to breathe, he's able to eat, but he's not able to move, and he's not even able to feel anything. He's completely dead in his senses and his abilities. And so we see ourselves as this paralytic person, right? We're often told to be like this person. And so to get to Christ, we're encouraged to be zealous and to push through every barrier, push through every boundary. But I want to explain that this paralytic person did nothing of that sort at all. The paralytic man with this whole body palsy is completely unable to move. He's not able to wave his arms and flag down some helpers. This isn't like he's gathering people to his side so that they can do something. He's not probably even able to exert much uh, vocal capacity to yell loudly or to get any attention. If he's a passerby, uh, or if he's laying on the street and there's a bunch of passersby, uh, they're probably trying to get to Jesus. They're not going to stop and take note of his condition. And so this man is completely unable to, unable to act on his own. This is what tells us about the spiritual condition of man. Man, apart from God, is not able to approach God, nor is he able to even feel the deadness of his sin. That is, he is dead to the pain and to the frustration and to the war in his soul because of his deadness to sin. That is how pernicious and evil sin is, because it not only destroys the nature of God in you, the image of God that you bear, but it also makes you dead to feel the pain of that problem. It's an extremely dangerous thing if you're numb in a place where you're also hurt. If you're numb in your hand and you're playing around in the kitchen, you put your hand on a burner and you don't feel it, that's a very bad situation. That is what the Bible says is the condition of sinful man. He is both unable to approach God, he's paralyzed, and he's unable to feel anything, and he's, he's unable to understand his condition. He's dead to his spiritual state. 
And so this person is laying upon this bed and he's at the mercy of whoever helps him. And I think that these four men are a type of or a symbol of the gospels. The gospels, all four of them equally, bring us before Christ and they show us our true condition. They show that we are without help. And so without this uh, intervention of the four, they, there is absolutely no way that this paralytic man can come before Christ. Now, Christianity is not alone an indictment against man's condition without any remedy. And what I mean by that is Christianity is not a religion which you take and beat someone over the head with and then leave them there. That, that is not what Christianity is. Christianity does not convict of sin and then say, woe is you, you are a sinner, stay away from the Lord. This is not the old covenant. We do not say, you are a leper, you have to leave, and then we leave you there. We tell you that you, you are a leper. We tell you that in your heart is gangrene and it must be cut, cut out of you or it will spread to your whole body and you will be left for dead completely without any remedy beyond which you don't have a remedy now. But Christianity indicts and then provides a remedy. This is why for, for new believers, it's so easy to fall into the condemnation of the devil is because we get convinced of our problem, but we fail to uphold the remedy. And that's your job as a believer in warring against the schemes of the enemy. It's your job to remember that you have a remedy in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your ugly way that you treat your family, in your ugly addictions, your ugly, ugly, ugly stuff that you don't want to acknowledge before God. But Jesus Christ in his ministry, in in what he speaks about, what he says while he testifies, while he preaches, he says you have to acknowledge your need or else he's no benefit to you. And so Christianity is not an indictment without a remedy. It is an indictment and a remedy. So this paralytic man is not left for dead, but rather there's a remedy. And the remedy is this. These four men are symbols of the, the church, gospel preaching, and the ministry that Christians have to the world around them. And, and I want to, to show you that's not an extrapolation that's directly in the text. Jesus uh, in verse five, and when Jesus saw whose faith? Not the paralytic's man, uh, not the paralytic man's faith. He says, it says, when he saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. It is not the faith of the paralytic which brings him before Christ at all. There is nothing in this text which commends the paralytic for trusting in Christ. It only commends the men who go past insurmountable obstacles. They barge in, they break their way into the kingdom as it were. Uh, The kingdom of God suffers violence and violent men enter it by force. These men are commended and Jesus sees their faith. He understands them coming to Christ and he rewards the paralytic man because someone brought him. Now that's beautiful because that is a microcosm, a small little world of what has happened throughout Christian history. Mankind and the various tribes and nations which ran away from Babel and spread the earth with, uh, filled the earth with wickedness as they spread away from that place, they continue to run from God. And God, through his infinite mercy, at the right proper time, Christ was born into the world. And through that, the church has gone throughout the world and preached a message of reconciliation and forgiveness of sins through faith in the name of Christ. That is a a macro view of this micro narrative. So the man is not rewarded for his faith. The, The men who carry him are rewarded and he gets the benefit. 
That is what your Christian effort and service to your fellow man is all about, is so that they would be able to be brought before Christ. And the way that you carry yourself in this world is a way that you bring Christ before them. You cannot take them up into heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand, still retaining his earthly body, though glorified. Uh, You cannot take them into a little shack and, and break down the roof and take down a tent and then drop them before Christ. You have to carry the presence of Christ with you. And so this man is an indi- indication of our spiritual state before we come to God. Unable to move, unable to do anything about it, and in need of help from someone else. It is not the paralytic who gets up. When Christ heals this man, of course, the hypocrites get angry. This is the beginning of a pattern in all the gospels, but here in Mark, that whenever Christ comes in and heals someone, the religious system, and I'm not talking about what James says is true religion, which is to serve the orphan and the widow, but rather godless religion, faithless religion, uh, which is a system of law keeping in order to be righteous by keeping the law, that religious system, these scribes, these people who were well-trained in the scriptures, get angry because Christ is breaking outside of their box. He's operating outside of their paradigm. They can't understand what he's doing. This is, uh, this is un- it's unthinkable to them. Verse six, now, when some of the, uh, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can for- forgive sins but God? I want to indicate again, just like we saw last week with Jesus being able to perceive in his spirit the various conditions and needs, and also Jesus later would testify in John that he only does what he sees the Father doing. So Jesus is acting by the Holy Spirit, and we see that take place again. Jesus perceives in his spirit by the Holy Spirit, and he understands what's in their hearts. Verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? What an undoing of the scenario. These guys think that they're the righteous. They think that they're connected to God. And they think that this person is a blasphemer. And yet through just not even with the healing, but with his own first sentence, with his own first uh, accusation against them, a a right accusation, uh, he demonstrates that he can see in the spiritual realm. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit to hear these things. Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk? Now, he's positing a question, and I want you to answer this question for yourself. I want you to just think about it for a few minutes. Um, he then says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he, he goes and says to the paralytic, rise up, take up your bed and walk. I want you to think about that for a second. Um, the Son of Man uh, comment, I, I sent a video to, to a friend this week in which um, this, this uh, former Muslim who's now a Christian is debating with another uh, person who happened, that person is a Muslim at the time, and they're debating about these things. And one of the things that that video uh, reemphasized that I uh, I don't think we've talked about is that the son of man, when Jesus uses the, the phrase, the son of man, he is not saying the son of Adam. He is saying the son of man, which is a reference to Daniel in which there's a prophecy that Daniel gives. And that term son of man is the one who all the earth will worship, which is what we, I kind of mentioned earlier during our worship time is the son of man is not a title that means Jesus's manhood and the son of God is Jesus's divinity. It's, it's actually the opposite. 
And so the son of man is a reference to Jesus claiming to be that one who will eventually be coming on the clouds. So just so you're aware that that's already beginning, that's not a Matthew 23, 24, 25 development. That's not a, a you know, Luke uh, 14 on development. That is beginning at the, at, at the opening of his ministry. Jesus is saying, I am the one who is that, that one who Daniel prophesied about. The one who all the earth, every eye would see which is one of the things we sang this morning, that every eye would see Jesus Christ and coming on the clouds with the angels. And so Jesus here is testifying. Now, hopefully you've, you've been able to think to yourself, what is easier to say your sins are forgiven, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, the, the scribes rightly understand that to say to, some, to someone that your sins are forgiven, that is to claim a divine authority is it not? Sins are, by their definition, transgressions, boundary crossings, which you should not have crossed. That's what it means to transgress or to trespass. Uh, they, are, they are things that you have done, and they are rules that God has set up for you, for your good, which you have broken for your hurt, but for your own will instead of his will. And so to say to someone, I don't count your sins anymore, is to say that God doesn't count your sins anymore. Sins are not like dollars, and although we use that analogy frequently, you know, I can pay your debt, but sin, in, in the way that the Bible understands it, it's not a debt that I could pay for you. It's, you have transgressed against God. It's, it's you and God. It's not, I can't come in as a third party. I'm not part to that agreement. And so these sins, which Christ is saying are forgiven, they are God's, uh, they are in God's accounting. God, God uh, either wipes away the slate or he doesn't. He either retains sins against a person's account or he removes them. And so to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, is to claim a divine authority. The scribes are not making that up. They're right. And yet, when he says this thing, I say to you, rise up, take up your, your bed and walk, he is doing something to demonstrate something. He's doing something in the natural which is a supernatural action to explain that he has supernatural resource to be able to back up that statement. Now, hopefully you landed on this, but here's my opinion. It's a lot easier to say the words, your sins are forgiven. Why is it easier to say that? Because there's nothing that, sin's not tangible. You, you can't like, here, take, take some sin with you as you leave my house. You can't deposit it in, into a bag. You can't say, my sin, you know, so... So when you say your sins are forgiven, there's, there's nothing that needs to be materialized. It's easy to get those words out of your mouth. Now, it's a lot harder to mean them and to mean them knowing that you're right. So it's much more difficult to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk. Why? Because that needs instant backup. This isn't calling and waiting for backup. That needs instant action. That needs instant manifestation. It's a lot harder to say, and to produce a result, rise, take up your bread and walk. Uh, now, the, the whole point is, this is a false dilemma. Jesus is trying to show them their hypocrisy because they ask him a question, you know, why, who is this guy to say that, you know, although they ask it in their hearts, and he posits to them a question just to, to help them see that they're, they're thinking completely wrongly. It's, it's a false dichotomy. It's equally hard to say your sins are forgiven and also rise up, take up your bed and walk. And what Jesus does is he demonstrates that he has the authority to speak on God's behalf and also to act on God's behalf, to actually count sins as removed. 
And so he, he plainly says in verse uh, 9 and 10, so that, or sorry, verse uh, yeah, 10 and 11, so that you would know that the Son of Man has authority. So he does this in order to demonstrate. He demonstrates that he has divine authority to forgive sins by wielding the divine power to heal. The divine power, which we hope to use in our, in our life and ministry, the divine power, is not, that is not uh, outside of or without respect to demonstrating the divine authority of Christ. This is not, we're not going on a healing crusade just for a healing crusade's sake. We do these works of service, these works of ministry, we pursue the gifts in order to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is both the Son of God, that is, he is the one that God has sent, he's the Messiah, and the Son of Man, the Lord of all, and also that he is the King to whom all should submit. And, and those two things are held in, in tandem. They're, it's not one, it's not the other. It's not enough to proclaim the Lord is Christ and to declare gospel forgiveness and not have any authority to back that up. That's what Jesus does in this passage. He demonstrates that he has authority to, ha- to forgive sins by also removing this sickness. And so these two things being married in this account demonstrate the true gospel. Jesus Christ is not going around healing people of their infirmities and then leaving them in the same spiritual state. Also, likewise, he's not doing something about their soul condition and ignoring the rest of their life. So often we uh, have faith today in the church to believe that God still does miracles, but the only miracles that we believe is that he converts unbelievers to believers. They, They are dead in their sins and then they're alive in Christ. That's a miracle. And for some reason, we have a lot of faith to believe that that still happens, but we have very little faith to believe that he still heals. But I would like to say that there's no actual difference in the question that Jesus posits. When he says, what's, what is easier to say? It's a false dichotomy. They're not, they're not opposite. They're equally hard. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's confronting the, the scribes in their uh, religious system. And this is how he's being unveiled to Israel. Remember, this is the time of epiphany is when we see Jesus Christ as being made manifest to the nation of Israel and then through that, the whole world. And in this way, this is our first example in Mark where he begins to not only be uh, demonstrated openly to the public, but also to their religious hierarchy, their religious system. And so Jesus is wielding this authority to show that he has divine authority. And after this par- uh, this narrative, we then move the the scene kind of transition. So if you imagine one of those screen wipes, we're just going to move on. Jesus is now going, uh, he's, you know, still in Capernaum. And then he goes, you know, he leaves Capernaum and goes back to Galilee. It doesn't say Galilee, but he, he's, it says in verse 13 that he goes out to the sea, probably explicitly referring to, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And so there's a crowd, and this happens again, Mark chapters four and five. Uh, this is a common place for Jesus to be teaching. And he finds this guy named Levi. And many of us have heard that tax, ga- tax collectors or tax gatherers are these evil guys. But I want to explain, just in case you've never understood why people say that, what happens. Uh, tax collectors are conspirators, or they are uh, conspiring with the Romans in oppressing Israel. So Israel was given promises by God that that through righteous kings, they would uh, exercise authority over the land, the promised land, and wherever their feet would tread, 
they would uh, possess that land and, and they would be fruitful. So whenever there's an invading army, we've, we've, ex we've explored this uh, pretty extensively during our discussion of exile. Whenever there's an invading uh, authority and an invading government that exercises authority over the land, we know that Israel is under judgment, right? And so if they're under judgment, oftentimes the cry of the uh, prophets is that God would rebuke those who are his uh, people who are um, judging his, his nation, which judges his people, that God would actually rebuke that nation because they go too far. It, that uh, theme first shows up in Genesis and also uh, Deuteronomy. And so, so God here is, is using this foreign nation and he brings this foreign nation in to occupy Israel and to oppress his people for a time so that they would repent, they would see the futility of their ways, and they, they would return to him. But time and again, these nations, whether it's uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, or the Romans, these nations, or at times also the, the Philistines, um, these nations go beyond their boundary. They, they exercise judgment too harshly. And so these tax collectors are people who join the, the Romans in oppressing the people. A lot of us, we kind of, uh, we, we think that that's, well, you know, kind of normal. Rome has to take taxes. Well, here's how they made their money. There was a tax code, probably a lot simpler because they didn't have as much paper than our tax code. But there was a tax code, and basically the tax code was complicated. And so you had tax professionals who were um, working for the Romans, and they didn't, you know, Rome didn't have enough people to send to get taxes. So, so they would be natives, and that was would hopefully, in the Romans' thought, it would soften the blow a little bit if your fellow, uh, if someone who spoke your own language was was working with you on your taxes. And, and so they, they have to pay this amount of money, but the tax collectors didn't get a salary from Rome. They basically were, were, were able to understand the tax law and then reinterpret it and present it as a lie. They would extort people and they would say, oh, well, you actually owe two-fifths of your crop instead of one-fifth because this is an even-numbered year or something ridiculous like that. Now, a lot of people think, okay, that's really evil, but think about it like this. You know, a lot of us, we pay money every year. We're, I'm about to be paying my money. Uh, and and we, we think to ourselves, oh, well, they're like someone who worked for the IRS. This is way worse than that. Imagine how you would feel if someone who worked for the IRS made money on commission. That would be a totally different level of temptation to hate them than your current level, which you should not hate them, but nevertheless... Uh, and the Fed. So, so these people are working with Rome in putting the screws on their fellow Israelites. This is like the worst thing imaginable. Now, these tax collectors make their money off the float. They try to convince people they need more to pay more taxes, and then they keep, they, they lie, they deceive, they swindle, they use false measures right? These are things that the law prohibits. And so this is the, the context of who a tax collector is. It's not just someone who works for a tax agency. It's someone who makes a profit at it. And so this is who, this is who Levi or Matthew uh, is when he is called. Jesus says, follow me. And then um, Levi goes and follows. And so uh, when we pick it up in verse 15, the he, the relative pronoun he, uh, is referring to Levi. 
So Jesus calls Levi, he says, follow me. And then in verse 15, Levi reclines at a table in his house. Jesus doesn't have a house, remember? The uh, foxes have their holes, birds have their nests. The son of man has no place to rest his head. So it has to be talking about Levi, Levi's house. And Levi has a bunch of tax collector buddies. He sent out some tweets or whatever and got them all together and they had a party at his house. Now think about this. If you... Uh, imagine anybody put, you know, maybe IRS worker doesn't jive with you. Maybe put in whoever you want, someone who kidnaps kids and sells them for money. That would work. Someone who prostitutes women. That would work. If you put that in as the substitute, just so you can get your mind around what's going on. Jesus goes to a party where they are present and he eats with them and he hangs out with them and he befriends them in a way. He doesn't approve of what they're doing. But nevertheless, it's, it makes your blood boil to think that Jesus would hang out with someone like that. And yet this is what happens. Now, I want to emphasize that I'm not stretching that because the word here is tax collectors and sinners. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't really seen a lot of people driving around that I would notice as openly, that person's a sinner. <laughs> as in, you can just tell I mean, I've seen some of those people, sometimes because we're biased, we think they're poor, but I've seen some people, you know, in in the the business realm who look equally uh, guilty. These people openly can be identified by the narrative writer, Mark, as sinners. It's not lost on anybody who's there what's going on. These people are known tax collectors. They are known in the community as siding with Rome, and they're people who can openly and rightfully be called and identified as sinners. That's amazing. Levi throws this party. There's lots of friends. They're, they're sinners. They could be pimps. They could be prostitutes. They could be grafty politicians. Do you know what graft means? It means, again, making money off of corruption, taking bribes, setting up these deals where you give your friend a contract for the government, and in, in your private life, that friend then gives you a kickback. Uh, this, this is what politicians do, especially in America. This is m- many of the politicians that you know and have heard about. Uh, this is what they're involved in. If you ever want to know about these things, it's, it's painful, but just Google the 50 richest senators and then just read that page and um, talk to me a few weeks later after you've stopped crying and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. These are people who are stealing money from you. They're stealing money from me. They're stealing money from our country. And these are people who are openly identified as sinners. It doesn't really matter what you want to put in as an excuse or, or, sorry, not an excuse, but a substitute uh, here, because this is what is going on. Jesus is eating with people who are tax collectors. Even if you didn't include anybody else, that enough would make your blood boil. It would make mine boil. And so Jesus sits down and he befriends these people. He eats with them. Now, Jesus eating with them just so you understand, is not he's not approving of what they're doing as if they should just continue to be evil and cheat people and whatever they're doing. But rather, he is spending time with them in order to demonstrate that he has a wealth of, of resource with God and they are spiritually bankrupt. One of the things that I think is interesting is we have such a difficulty getting people to come to church in, in our culture today. And yet, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is willing to be with people who wouldn't usually feel welcome in our services and certainly wouldn't feel welcome in a lot of the ways that we present ourselves as Christians on a cultural level. 
I, I'm not necessarily saying that's true in our church. I think a lot of people, various sinners have been here and, and stayed here, and uh, they've, been, they've found it welcoming. And I think we should do a good job of that. But I don't think it's right to, as a culture, uh, have, have cultural wars in which all people take away from Christianity is that there is no place for broken people. There's no place for people who are messed up to be with Christ. But Jesus is completely warring against that idea in this passage. And, and we see him, that's not an inference, that's what he says. The, the, again, the, uh, the religious people, they are, their feathers are ruffled. They're, it's like petting a cat backwards. It's a horrible thing for them that Jesus is hanging out with these uh, sinful people. And yet, <clears throat> Jesus explains that this is his entire purpose and mission. The scribes of, of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Their question is basically, why is he eating with these people? He's saying, they're saying that he should not be associating with them. He should not even be seen in public, let alone know them, let alone spend time with them. And in that culture, to eat a meal was to have fellowship, same as in our culture. Uh, that's one great thing about American culture is if you want to hang out with somebody, take them to a barbecue place or wherever. And that's, you know, a bar, a restaurant, whatever. That's an easy way to connect with people today. It's, that's, I think that's ingrained in the way that God made food and God made people. And so he is fellowshipping with these people. He is being friendly. And so they ask this question, why is he doing this? <clears throat> Jesus, again, understands, it doesn't say this again in the text, but he understands the point behind their question. They're not wanting factual data about what, what he's doing, as if they didn't get the invitation. They want to know his purpose behind why he's doing this. They want to know why he's not keeping himself at a distance. And you can tell that that's their intention because of how Jesus responds. He doesn't respond with some naturalistic or some sort of, uh, you know, oh, it was convenient, or I had already paid for this food and they showed up and we were already eating and then they arrived. He doesn't give any excuses. He says why he's doing it. He's intentional about spending time with them. It's not an afterthought. Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Isn't that true? I don't know about you. I hate the doctor. I never go to the doctor. I think doctors are horrible. <clears throat> to let you know how much I hate a doctor, one time, I'll tell you a little story. This will give you some context. One time I was at a chiropractor and they did one of those little MRI things. It wasn't an MRI. It was just an x-ray. Um, and he did an x-ray and then he, you know, he's showing me on this little chart and he's pointing to this thing in my back and, and I'm like freaking out already. And he hasn't even started talking. He says, well, it looks like you have what we call remnant scoliosis, which means, and then he just, I don't, I didn't even hear the rest of it. Cause I went into shock and I start sweating and my blood is like, I'm, my heart's pumping and I'm like, I gotta lay down. I've just, I can't deal with this. I hate doctors. I don't go to a doctor unless I need to go to a doctor like really badly, like this hasn't gotten better for a few months or, you know, when I move this thing, it still grinds. Um, I don't want to go to a doctor. Jesus is saying here, those who don't see their need for a doctor, they don't go. This is total, I, I get him. I get him a lot. And so he makes an extrapolation. He says that I did not come for the righteous, but for the sinners. What he says is that those who do not see their need for him have no part in him. 
What, what happens in the upper room when he washes the disciples' feet? Peter objects. He says, Lord, I do not want you, you know, don't wash my feet. I should be washing your feet, right? And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Unless you recognize your vital need for Christ, unless you see yourself as this paralytic man at the beginning of the chapter, unable to do anything about your condition, you can't lift a finger to help you. And you also are dead to the condition that you're in. You don't even see your problem. The, the fire is burning all around you and you feel cold. Unless you are like that paralytic man, you have no need for Christ. That is what he's doing when he objects to the Pharisees and their scribes saying that they should be away from, uh, that Jesus should keep himself at a distance from these sinful people. Jesus identifies himself as the master physician who's not just mending bodies, he's mending souls. And that is what the message of Christianity is. It's not just an indictment that you need Christ or that you need God, or that you're a sinner. Those are true, and it does say that, but then it lifts up Jesus Christ as amazingly beautiful, glorious, full of light and life. And, he, and, and Christianity presents and promotes that you should trust in him rather than go it alone. And so Jesus is calling us to be like these kind of people, these kind of people who would go and not permit sin, not, not just be okay with hanging out with sinful people, but at least being able to touch and interact. You don't have to condemn someone in order to love them. Loving does include calling them out of their sin, but it certainly doesn't include putting them at a distance and saying, you're not welcome in our lives, schools, community, whatever. We've seen this in different ways in, and at different times in our culture. In, in the 50s and 60s, it was brought to a head in the, in the civil rights movement in which you had, as a culture, America was kind of comfortable living black and white in separate areas. Now, that still happens to some degree, um, but it, it's, it's improved a lot. But it happens in other ways today. And I think the, the biggest way that the church is sinning in this area is how we are treating those people who suffer from same-sex attraction and homosexual temptations. And what we do in the church is we say, you're not welcome. Now, we're not saying you have to be members. That uh, Jesus isn't saying that they're disciples. He's eating with them. Now, what we can do as Christians to remedy this is to be able to lovingly allow people to be in our lives without feeling like we have to shun them. And, and if someone does not wish to follow Christ, that doesn't mean you have to disconnect with them completely. Now, if they're, if they're actively warring against your faith, it may be wisdom to kind of distance yourself. But at, nevertheless, it is not a requirement as a follower of Christ to only have friends with Christians. And in fact, that would be, I, I don't know, but it looks like that would be the strategy of the Pharisees. So I would encourage you, if you have people in your life who you, you aren't sharing the life of Christ with, consider whether that is some, you know, unthought uh, conclusion that you've come to, something that you haven't ever analyzed, or, or consider, you know, search your own heart to see if that's actually your thought of, I need to keep myself righteous, and I need to keep these people away from me. Because that certainly isn't what Christ does in this text, and I don't think that's what Christ wants for us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that we would see ourselves as this paralytic. Lord, convince us that before we come to you, we can't lift a finger and we can't even feel the danger that we're in. God, give to us uh, grace that we would be able to see your, your merciful action 
on our behalf that you not only heal physically, but also that you remove sins, that through your cross, the sins of man may be taken away. Lord, also give us a heart that would be merciful to our neighbors. But Lord, before we have that heart, help us to see that you ate with us and that you still invite us to eat today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.